0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our next episode of Labeling the Disable, Ling Labeling the Disabling, sponsored by the Disability Trust. Today, things have changed slightly. Um, as many of you might know, we are living in a COVID nineteen world pandemic, um, and so today's interview is not a face to face interview as we usually know them. Today, we are interviewing Yen Perkis via Zoom meeting, so we can see each other, uh, but we aren't in the same room. Uh, Yen Perkis is an author, advocate, and mentor for people with disability, and in 2016, Yen won the ACT Volunteer of the Year Award. I'm also joined by my co-host, Ed Burt.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: And welcome, Yen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show.
1: Excellent. Great to meet you. Great to meet you, Yen. And yeah, it is. It is good to do it over um, remote uh, technology. So uh, we do need to get used to this, Carol. And yes, that means we, we can <laughs> we can talk to people at a distance. Um, so it's good to be touching base with you in our nation's capital today, Yen. Yeah.
0: So we might. Um kick it off with the first question, um, and that was about this COVID-19 mm. world. Do you want to yeah. um, so ask yeah. the question specifically um, of Yen?
1: Yeah, so we're really keen to hear, Yen, um, how you're coping in, in these COVID times. Uh, you know, Are there particular issues, you think, for people with Asperger's and autism that policymakers should be thinking about in terms of supporting people during this social isolation?
2: I think it's a really difficult time for everyone but particularly for people with a disability and autistic people tend to be very anxious, we tend to worry about things and all of this stuff with COVID is all about anxiety Mm. and uncertainty. Yes. And you ask most autistic people, they don't like uncertainty. It's very stressful. Um, we tend to ruminate and catastrophize and all those thinking styles that can be quite unhelpful. And this situation just thrusts us right into that in a big way. So it's a big challenge and just logistically um autistic parents of autistic kids being in lockdown and how does that work and managing expectations of kids as well Um, and kids might really respond very poorly to this situation Um, so it's really important to be aware of those issues and that level of uncertainty that people are dealing with and that the impact it's having on people's mental health and well-being. And I know that gets said all the time. You, you know, mm. Even the ABC's got a thing where they're promoting positive mental health and stuff, which is great. But I think for autistic people it's to a higher degree mm. um, and I think it is a real issue for autistic people, all this uncertainty, um, not knowing what's happening one day to the next Watching the news, I don't watch the news. Um, I know I should watch the news to know what's going on, but I can't bring myself to because it's just too stressful and too traumatic and there's so mm-hmm. much misery going on. I've got people in Victoria who've been messaging me about, you know, how they're feeling about things and it's it's a real, really bad situation. There's, I mean, I know some people say, well, working from home is a really good thing for people with disability and that is true. Um, Mm. But the the negatives do definitely outweigh the positives to my mind and Mm. I think we do all need to look out for one another and to be aware that people might be struggling even if they don't say they are.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I heard you um, saying one of the clips that I watched um, was that when you're looking after your mental health and when you feel that you're um, experiencing um, a mental health situation, one one of the things that you really like to do is go out and help somebody else um, and that must have been impacted in this time when we are in shutdown or when we are working from home or when we have less contact with other people. Um, so what have you been trying to do um, to support yourself through this time?
2: Uh, I've been – I mean, I have been – focusing outwardly to other people and supporting other people because that does, it puts everything in perspective as well. Um, so that has been helpful. I've also been practicing some mindfulness and things like Mm -hmm. that and managing, um, you know, deep breathing and all those things that you're meant to do for anxiety. Um, and I find that that does help. Yep. Um, Mm. and just connect with friends. I think it's really important to connect with friends and peers and family um, and, you know, look out for them uh, but also have, you know, have that, that contact and be that online or over the phone. Mm. Um, and in Canberra at the moment the restrictions are not as heavy as they have been so we actually can physically mm. socialise with friends. In fact, well, my family are in Victoria so I'm not socialising face-to-face mm. with them. Um but I call my mum every day and my dad and talk to them about what's going on and how they're going and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which I find does put everything into perspective. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's good for them as well. They, they like getting a call from me. Um, and, you know, it's a mutual benefit. And yeah. I, yeah. I think that connecting with other people
1: is really important. do yeah. so you think um, Absolutely. people with, um, you know, if they're on the autism spectrum and, and additionally perhaps have an intellectual disability, um, there are, you know that must be particularly challenging one would think in terms of understanding what's happening we've seen the use of social stories a lot uh, in terms of trying to communicate with people about what's happening uh, and trying to make sense of of the world um, i do it's interesting to hear you talk about mindfulness and meditation and breathing um, those are great techniques i think that you know, are we using them enough? Um, are we supporting um, people, perhaps, who may not have the the cognitive ability as well to to really um, comprehend what's what's happening? But they they're very very aware and and sensitive and in touch with what's happening around them. So we've got to find ways of of making sure we're keeping that communication going and and not making assumptions about people. Have you have you seen impacts on on people on the autism spectrum with intellectual disability who are struggling?
2: Oh, definitely, mm. definitely. Mm. And it, it is really challenging and, it is, and communication is the absolute key. And mm. making sure people have the... Uh, the outlet to communicate as well. So people that might not use verbal speech, it's really important. Yeah. And this is not just during COVID, this is always. Yeah. It's really important to give them the, uh, the the equipment they need in order to actually communicate mm-hmm. with other people because not being able to communicate is extremely frustrating mm. and relates to a lot of difficult behaviours and things like that mm. all come down to that inability to actually communicate. But mm. there's so many methods and strategies and, and equipment that you can use in order to Communicate when you don't use verbal speech. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, I think social stories are a wonderful thing. I, um, I for kids and even adults um, with an intellectual disability, I think social stories are really important. They're a great strategy.
1: Can you um, can you explain to the listeners what what that what what you're referring to there if they're not. Um, Familiar with the use of social stories? Yeah.
2: Social stories was um, coined by Carol Gray, I think, who's a clinician, and they're basically um, an explanation of what's going to happen, often with pictures and things like that, um, and explaining, and sometimes with drawings and cartoons and things like that, and explaining a situation or Um, event or something like COVID-19 and they make it easier for um, autistic kids and adults too to understand what's going on and that lessens anxiety. So one of the worst things for autistic people is uncertainty and a social story knocks out that uncertainty to a degree and makes it less of an impact so it's a, a lovely strategy and really helpful and uh, lots of people use it lots of parents use it yeah. um, and I, I would recommend it um, done well it can make a big difference to someone's anxiety and someone's ability to comprehend what's happening.
1: Yeah indeed I think it's one of those um, techniques um, and strategies that has such so much greater u- uh, utility in, mm-hmm. the, in the broader community because I think they're fantastic social stories are a really great way to to prepare um, for an event, uh, or an, or you know, a, yeah, like visiting the doctors is a great yeah. one that um, people really struggle with. Uh, so you just prepared. Um, psychologically and emotionally for what, what's ahead of you uh, allows yeah. you to, to to prepare. So
0: yeah, as, as with so many things we see, when we make something accessible to a group of people with disability, um, it has such a flow on effect to the broader community um, without disability. Um, I'm just thinking of all the ways that those social stories could be used to help people uh, who may not speak English as their first language or who um, may not um, identify or or have practiced social norms that we're all yeah. supposed to know when we join yeah. a society or a culture. So that's a really yeah. um, valuable um, tool to so use. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I was Yen. I was wanted to ask you. You've you've written about your experience of um, that feeling embarrassed, confused, angry, uh, and you know about being different as a young person, and then how after. Um, you know you were diagnosed as an adult I I believe uh, with Asperger's is that right and and we we wanted I just was really keen to hear what that was like for you if if it did if it was helpful it helped you to understand and accept yourself that's the sort of impression I get from reading um, the the information you've put out but I'd love to hear more about that
2: yeah so I was one of those autistic people that doesn't accept that they're autistic for many, many years. I was diagnosed when I was 20 Right, and I was in a very dark situation. My life was in a really negative place and my parents sought the diagnosis because they'd come across somebody who had Asperger's and thought it sounded like me and so they got a clinician to come and diagnose me and all of that. Now, I was in a position in my life where I wanted to be in trouble, I wanted to be difficult, all of those things. And so I didn't accept this diagnosis and a couple of reasons. One was that I thought it was my parents making excuses for my behaviour. But I also (laughs) thought it validated what the bullies said at school and all the things, you know, the bad stuff that was said to me. I thought that this diagnosis just vindicated that and I didn't want a bar of it. Deep down I knew I was autistic but I was really challenged by the whole concept and it took me seven years to get to a point where I accepted it and it took me a few more years to get to a point where I embraced it and that happened when I wrote my autobiography yep. in 2005, wow. which was 11 years after I was diagnosed and that sort of thrust me into the autism community such as it was and then I developed my sense of pride in who I am through that. But I was not somebody. A lot of adults who are diagnosed now absolutely embrace it and think it's the best thing ever and are really proud of being autistic and it's mm. fantastic. That was not me. It's me now, definitely. I'm very much in the neurodiversity perspective and autistic pride and valuing who I am as I am and all of those lovely things. But it took me a very long time to get to that point. And I often say that to people because I have people that contact me and they say, Look, I don't really like my diagnosis. I don't want to be autistic. I say that's actually okay. There's nothing that says you have to embrace it passionately and say, This is wonderful, this is a great thing. There's no there's nothing that says you have to do that. And it's everyone's journey is different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a really interesting Uh, observation uh, allowing people to come to it in their own time in their own way I think it's interesting hearing you talk about the the benefit of writing your autobiography um, in terms of that processing i mean you're a prolific writer um how does that help you to process you you said that that helped that was really what helped you um embrace and accept um your asperger's diagnosis what seven years after you'd after you'd been you know um given that diagnosis so that's that how how important how does writing work for you i'm really Keen to hear well, about I that. Think
2: that. I write every week. Yeah. Um, I've got a book on the go at the moment, which is great. Yeah. Um, I do a blog, so every week I do a blog post. Mm. And when I write them, I I'm in intense concentration, absolute mm. hyper focus, and I download all the information from my brain into the computer. That's how <laughs> I said it. it takes me twenty minutes to write around eight hundred words. That's very and quick. Mm. Yes, and I'm exhausted <laughs> yeah. afterwards. I'm wow. physically exhausted because it's so intense. Yep. And mm. then I edit it and then I post it. And it actually takes longer to post it on all the different social media groups I post it on than it does to draft oh, it. Wow.
0: Writing
2: yeah. is very intense for me and yeah. um, it, it's a physical thing. And yep. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I, I'm drawn to it. I can't stop doing it. Um, oh. Yeah. I, I have to write. It's a lovely thing. I've always written. I used to write poetry when I was seven. Yep. Um, I used to write short stories and um, things like that the whole way through school and just loved it. And it's, then I didn't really do any sort of serious writing mm. for many years. And then when I was at uni, so I studied visual arts at uni, oh, so, yeah. and I used to do all these like little text-based artworks, and a lot of people would say, yeah, you need to um you need to write your life story because I have an interest in life. <laughs> and people kept saying this and I kept ignoring it. And then when I was uh, 30, I met Holly Samuel, who used to be called Donna Williams, the autistic advocate and author, and she encouraged me to write my story. And the thing was, she was the only person who put it in a way that made sense to me because she said, if you write your story, Your parents, that's who your your autobiography would be for. It's for the parents like your parents who had kids on the spectrum who were difficult and had a hard time. Mm. That's for your books for. And I thought, well, I need to write that because that's a useful thing. So I
1: did. So
0: really I wrote it for the parents who were like my parents.
1: Yeah, it is a useful thing, incredibly. So you
0: mentioned there um – She said for you, you'd had an incredible life. People had said that. Can you tell us a little bit about that for our listeners? So,
2: yeah, so basically um, I got involved in the socialists when I was 16. I read Karl Marx on the school bus and decided that I was a Marxist.
0: As we do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent.
2: So I joined the socialists, which was fine. But through The socialists, when I was 20, I met this man who was very dangerous, scary man, but I didn't realise that. And he seemed really interesting and exciting to me, and he did sort of direct action, as in violence, and I was sort of drawn to this because I was so negatively focused. When I was at school, I was just bullied constantly, and I hated myself. And I wanted bad things to happen in my life. I sought out bad things. Mm. And so through knowing this very scary man, I got involved in crime and ended up going to prison. Mm. And... Um, I was there for six months and then I was released Wow! and I was so damaged by the experience that I self-medicated with lots of drugs and that led to me having a psychotic episode. Now, I still have schizophrenia 25 years later, so be very careful with drugs, everyone. Don't do it. Mm. Um, And I just spent the next few years just in this downward spiral of misery and institutionalization and hospitals and prisons and all sorts of dreadful things. Mm. And then when I was 25, I decided that my life needed to change. Um, And it was coming up for the millennium. And I thought the new millennium needs to equal a new life for me. Mm. And so I set about changing my life. And I hadn't I'd lost track of who I was. I'd lost my identity. I didn't know who I was. I masked so much. The common issue for autistic people is masking mm-hmm. and pretending to be someone other than who you are. And that was definitely me. But when I was 26, I decided I needed to be a different person. And who did I want to be? What were the qualities of a different person that I wanted for myself? And so I, I, I looked and saw what other people that I admired were doing and sought To take on those qualities for myself, and when I was 26, I enrolled in university, and I got a bachelor's degree, an honors degree, and a master's degree. Um, I wanted to work. Um, I I decided I wanted to be ordinary, and being ordinary meant having a professional job, a mortgage, and a suit. And so (laughs) that was that was my goal. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And so I set about making it happen, but I was so anxious about work. work was very anxiety provoking. and so I got really unwell with psychosis because I did a job before I was ready to do a job. So I didn't think I'll never be able to work. I just thought I can't work now. Mm-hmm. And so over the next few years, I got a volunteer job, I started a small business, and gradually incrementally building my confidence around work. And then when I was um, 32, Amazingly, I joined the public service, and I'm probably there aren't that many autistic, schizophrenic, ex prisoner public servants out there. <laughs> I remember I the only one, but I was, you know, I had to answer a whole lot of additional questions yes. um, in order to start my job and mm-hmm. be accepted that I was. And I've been in the public service for over 13 years now. Mm. I own my own property. Um, Fantastic. Remarkable. You know, my life is unlike anything you could imagine. So that's why
0: I wrote an autobiography. Mm. That was a good suggestion that that person had actually. It was an excellent suggestion um, that you write all that down Um, and by 30 you had done so much Mm. and experienced so much Mm. um, that, yeah,
1: it was... How how did you uh, cope with that um, incarceration experience, Yen? Mm. I mean, you you said you were there for six months and, and, and it really... Um, traumatized you. I mean, what, can you? I don't want to, you know, I go you into that if you, if you don't if you don't want to. But I'm. A, I, I think it must be very uh, confusing and difficult for anybody going into into that environment, but um, And yeah. we know that so much mm. of our prison
0: um, population has um, some sort of mm. disability, um, yeah. either mm. mental health, mm. uh, a mental health condition, a physical disability, um, a sensory disability, a cognitive mm. disability. We know that people are not incarcerated um, for the right reasons mm. and shouldn't be there. Um,
2: yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah.
2: It's a, a justice solution to a health problem
0: yeah. Um, yeah.
2: I, yeah, I found when I was there, I was um, very much tried to fit into the the sort of society that was in there, yeah. and um, worked very well. I realised as soon as I got there, it was like a sort of malevolent high school where the bullies would kill you rather than just give you a hard wow. time. Wow. So yeah. I needed yeah. to be you know not so you'd already
0: done your apprenticeship basically at high school anyway yeah yeah Yeah. okay
2: i was much more successful at fishing in in prison than i ever was in high school Mm. um but it was a very scary place i mean you're constantly in fear for your life Mm. and it's and it was a different situation to me because most of the people there had come through children's homes and things like that so they've been institutionalized the whole time. But for me, I wasn't used to that world at all. So mm. I had to get used to it very quickly. Um, I sort of ended up being mothered by the older women because I was a bit vulnerable. Um, and, you know, it actually, I didn't get attacked or anything like that. Mm. But that constant awareness of threat mm. was really quite traumatizing. And mm. I didn't recognize it at the time. Mm. But in hindsight, I was very traumatized by the of experience. Course.
0: Yeah. yeah, and we know that that's um, not, a, not a healthy way to live, as mm. we know now from people's experience of post-traumatic stress disorder, that that kind of heightened level of anxiety continuously mm. um, affects people for the rest of their lives. So that, yeah, that's a yeah. difficult position to be in.
1: And you do yes. you do focus strongly on good mental health for people on the autism spectrum, you know, um, and I think you've, some of your writing is focuses on some of the vulnerabilities that that people on the autism spectrum may uh, have that that mean they've really got to be um, do have to be focused on mental health. Um, can you tell us a bit a bit more about that and why it's so important?
2: Uh, I mean autistic people are significantly more likely to have mental health conditions as the general population Mm. often that relates to trauma um, and and anxiety is a very common autistic trait so having an anxiety disorder is is definitely more common for Mm. autistic people autistic people also um you know have low prevalence disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar and things like that as well Um, And I think at a greater extent than the general population, but that's a lower prevalence sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But mental health conditions are very common for autistic people. Mm -hmm. And um, our mental health is not always sort of looked after very well. Um, accessing services for an autistic person can be an absolute nightmare yep. with clinicians not understanding autism, especially women, but men as well. And often you get misdiagnoses of things like borderline personality disorder and that kind of thing, which people don't actually have, but the way they present it looks mm. like they have that. So that's mm-hmm. that's a misunderstanding and a, a misdiagnosis, which can be really unhelpful. So, And I think people can feel very lonely. People can feel very isolated and like they're the only person in the world having these issues. So mm. I think it's really important to get the message out there that you're not alone mm. and there is help there's assistance and there's things that we can do ourselves to support our mental health yep. um, as well. So mm. I do have a book called The Guide to Good Mental Health on the Autism Spectrum which is all about that stuff. It's a very popular book. It's one of my two best-selling books. Excellent. So yeah about that but it's very helpful
1: for yeah, oh, I need to, I need to get a copy of that yen. Um, I love the title. I mean, it's just straight up the guide to good mental health. But yeah, so, I'd I'd like to get a copy yeah. of all of them actually. It's well, I
0: co- read them all on my phone because yeah. I can't read a book. But I would. Um, can I give you a suggestion? Could you write some children's books um, we for? Have a
2: children's oh, you do okay it's called the Awesome Autistic Go To Guide. Okay, and it's and it's for kids. kids. Yes, it is for kids. Um, The age range is about 9 or 10 to 14 and that's the other bestseller and it came out in April and it's done really well and lots of positive feedback from parents and from kids. We've had some lovely feedback from kids about it. And it's, it's wonderful. I also have one for teens, which is The Wonderful World of Work, which is all about employment yes. for teens. Um, I'm not saying send your teens down the mine. It's more <laughs> of a... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> ...when they get to
2: that stage. But, um, but
0: yes, yeah, so I have a couple of kids books. Excellent. Yeah. We'll make but sure that we um, reference those for our listeners definitely. on the um, podcast because yeah. it would be really great. We've only got a short time with you, Yen, and it would be great to speak to you forever because you've got... Mm. So much insight and information for people. Yeah, yeah
1: I, d- I did want to ask. Um, you, t- you have written about those benefits of employment uh, for people with disability. You know, I'm I'm interested in how we help employers realise mm. what they're missing out on by not being accessible to people uh, with all types of abilities. You know, I really think this. We often focus on the for employment. Oh, it's good for you, and you know all of this, and um, but. Employers are really missing out here. How can we help them? Yeah, I wonder.
2: I, I think it's breaking down the assumptions because mm. most employers, if you say you should hire someone with disability, they think about costs, they mm. think about time lost, you know, personal leave that mm. someone might take, they think about the costs of equipment that the person might need. But in reality, um, People with disability, and this is statistically proven, Mm. are less likely to take personal leave Um, and the cost of um, reasonable adjustments is low or nil. If you can go through job access um, and the employment, I think it's called the Employment Assistance Fund, you can get those workplace adjustments paid for by the government. So um, I think a lot of the problem is the assumptions that employers have and it's breaking down those assumptions. Mm. The other thing is having a lived experience example. So I've been involved in the past in an autism and employment program for a department I worked in and I would go and talk to the line managers because... I was living proof that employing people with disability is a really good thing. And that worked really well with those managers because they had an example of somebody Mm. who's in the department doing a good job. Mm. And I think that kind of thing and meeting people and talking to other managers that manage people with disability and just breaking down all those assumptions that employers have. Because I Mm. think that's the main problem. It's incorrect assumptions. Mm. And um, employers worry about costs and things like that. Um, And so, if they know that that's not an issue and that's not the case, that will help and if they meet managers and people with disability that
1: will also help yeah fantastic insights yeah
0: and i think during this covid we've all realized um how valuable having a job is not just Mm. in terms of finance but we talked earlier about being in our homes or working from home and not having that contact with others we've Mm. realized all of the benefits that come from uh employment and work um for everybody for the financial state of our country and for people um mm. and their mental health so that's really valuable yeah mm.
1: well, i loved i loved your comments about you know wanting to to have the suit and the mortgage and the yeah. <laughs> the job and and um but you know so many benefits on mm. both sides of the of the of the coin i yes. think as you say and um, I, I do just get a real sense that employers are often missing out big time on a more diverse workforce and different ways of approaching problems um, and and issues and um, challenges that they're having as as a business. No matter what that is, whether it's a you know a cafe or a or a, a public uh, you know a, a um, government department, um, I think I think the same principle. Uh, you know, abides, and we've seen we see so many creative, uh, innovative um, thinkers in in uh, who are people with disability. I um, mean, it's just naturally they're great, often great planners. You know, you've got to plan ahead, think ahead. Um, so well, you've you think, had to be, you've yeah, had to
0: do that all your life. That's it. Yeah. When you get somebody like you, Yen, who's 30 years old, um, who's got a uh, undergrad, an honours and a master's degree, has been to prison mm. um, and mm. has navigated a whole world of um, medical specialists, the kind mm. of experience that comes with that in terms of your ability to then fit into a workplace and yeah. contribute is yep. far higher than another graduate at 22 who's just yeah. Um, had a straightforward education, been to uni for four years and come yeah. into the workplace. The experience that you bring is not just like a CV no. experience, it's a whole life lived experience. And that. That's far more valuable. Now,
1: now, hang on. I just do just have to ask, are you 30 years old, Jen? Is that right?
0: No,
2: I'm 46 years old.
1: 46. Yeah. Oh, okay, but, but the example. <laughs> no, I the, meant when you got when you, the job, yeah, like yeah, when you yeah, started exactly. working in the public service. I was service. when I yeah. got the job. 30, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
2: I did. I looked at the, um, the advertisement for graduate roles and I thought I could do this yes. and I would enjoy this. Yeah. I thought I've got massive barriers to doing it and mm. they'll probably say no but if I apply and I get it, that's huge. Whereas mm. if I apply and I don't get it, I haven't lost anything. I'm Absolutely. in the same position. A, so yeah. I just thought it's worth giving it a try. Yeah. And I applied for two graduate roles because I didn't understand how competitive it was. Uh-huh. I was successful in one and shortlisted in the other. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I'm quite good at that kind of thing. I'm actually, unlike most Autistic people, I'm actually very good at job interviews. Mm. Um, I'm the only autistic person I've ever met who enjoys job interviews, but I'm actually very good at them.
1: (laughs) We're, but we're hearing that a lot from people coming onto this podcast. Seize the day, have a go. Um, you know it, what? What have you got to lose? You know, uh, I think putting yourself forward. We've 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 had authors and and um, uh, professors and professors and actors and and um, yeah, so many people who are just really uh, giving. Giving giving life a go, and and that's what we we're, we're excited about. So, I was I did want to ask you, Yen. You've recently changed your name, and you've come out as non-binary. Um, I'm really interested in in that. Can you tell us about? That experience, um, and I'm wondering, do you think as a society we have more or maybe less rigid expectations of of those aspects of identity for people with disability? Yeah, just
2: yeah. So I came out as non-binary about two years ago in 2018, and I changed my name about a year ago. Mm.
1: Um, so can you explain never... what that what that means non-binary for our listeners?
2: Yeah, it's basically where you feel that you don't fit either the male or the female sort of definition of gender and that you occupy, OSU is occupying a sort of third space um, rather than being one or the other. Mm. Um, For me, I've never felt female or male, I've never felt I belonged to one or other. Mm. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I got in no end of trouble for taking my shirt off in summer and I just couldn't understand what the issue was because I didn't have boobs. It was an issue, it was a big issue and I got in lots of trouble. Um, and that kind of thing. And when I was at school, my ambiguous gender was definitely a cause for bullying and people right. people mm. gave me a hard time for being gay because apparently if you're if you, you don't conform to the gender binary you must be gay. Um, which isn't true actually. There's plenty of cisgender, so mm. the same feel the same gender as they're born with, Uh, people who are gay, uh, there's quite a lot, Um, Mm. but anyway, um, that kind of thing, Mm. and when I lived in public housing, when I was in my late 20s, there were these boys who were nasty little bullies, and they always used to ask me, are you a boy or a girl, and I'd say I'm both, because I am both, Mm. and I'm neither as well, Um, so, It's been part of my existence for a long time, but I didn't have the language for it. We didn't talk about non-binary when I was a kid. It wasn't an option. Um, And so um, a few years ago, I started talking to some of my autistic transgender friends um, about gender and things like that and started having that conversation. And then I remember in 2017, I had a conference in Perth. I was over in Perth and we had drinks afterwards. I got talking to this person and I don't know why I said this. I said, oh, I think I'm non-binary gender. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's different. Mm. And, then, and then in 2018, I posted something on Facebook about it. And I thought, okay, well, that's officially that's officially done now. Yeah. And with my name. I never liked my name. I never felt that my name was appropriate to who I was. It didn't suit me. I felt it was like a an old coat that you didn't like very much, but you had to wear because you didn't have another one. Wow. Um, and, and so in when I started thinking about my name, I wanted to change it, but I didn't know what to change it to. And I kept trying to force the issue and think, oh, I want it to be this, I want it to be that. None of it worked. And so I thought, okay, I'll just let my subconscious think about it. And so in February last year, I was at work, and I thought, Yen, and I wrote it down, Y-E-N-N-E, and I thought, no, I went, Yen, A double I'm like, yep, yeah, that's me, and so that was my name, and it wow. happened almost instantaneously, but I think the reason for my name is a few things. To Yen, in poet- poetic language, is to yearn, and I'm a big self-reflector, so lots of yearning goes on, um, mm. It's a nod to my old name, and my old name was Jeanette. so ends N's and E's and things like that. Mm. And it's also fairly genderless, um, which was, mm. you know, a good good, uh, a good a quality for a new name for a non-binary person. So I've had my name now for, yeah, for over a year and a half, right. and I love it to bits. It's, um, it's me. Um, I'm very proud of – in fact, some people – including me, shorten it, to, or, or call me Jenski, which is quite <laughs> fun. I love the whole and thing. You, I want a kid's oh, book
0: about that. I, I so love cool. the whole analogy to that the old so coat. Cool. I can just see the illustrations it's now fantastic. of a little child saying I'm neither and I'm both and yeah. um, taking off the clothes and taking off the coat. Please please write a kid's book about that because it's be such a helpful. wonderful yeah. story and such a wonderful um, Mm. Story to Mm. share With young children Like I mean Like a fictional mm. one Like a little You Mm. know I can see the Watercolour illustrations Now about the old Mm. coat That's so fabulous Yen I love that And I just um, read this morning Kate Tempest, who's an author as well, she's changed her name to Key. I don't know how to spell it because Facebook reads it to me, Um, but there's a lot of um, literary um, information behind her name change in terms of what the name means. So what you've just shared with us about what your name means in terms of writing and a nod to Mm. your old name, um, you know, The Yearning and Jeanette um, and just the whole way you've explained that um, could be so beneficial to people um, trying to make that decision about their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. – um, and that's why I was wondering as well. I think, you know, people generally feel a very um, rigid expectations about about um, gender mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. identity um, across society really. Uh, I, I do think – and I think people – as they go through their lives, they they can you know they can change um, in in uh, all of these areas, but um, society isn't particularly uh, forgiving of that a lot of the time, and and people get very confused and um, challenged by that. So I was wondering, yeah, if if you if you thought it was any different for for somebody who um, who has a disability or is known as a person with a disability, I mean it might be could be. I don't suppose it's any easier or any... (laughs) I think it's just a very difficult area for everybody perhaps, but... Well, I think
0: sometimes when you've got disability, you're already Mm. judged and assessed um, Mm. and assumptions are being made about you. Mm. I don't know if you feel this, um, Yen, but I have. Mm. You know, assumptions are being made about your ability or about your disability or about your capability or your capacity, about your interaction. You know, if you're humble, then you're a good person with disability. If you make noise about it, then you haven't come to terms with it. There's all of these judgments being made. Mm. And then on top of of that, you've layered it and I've layered it with this non-binary, um, identification uh, mm. for whatever our reasons are, but that might be what you're getting at. Is that yeah. is that what you felt, Yen, or...? Yeah, look, I, I find um,
2: with my identity, I think a lot about identity and I think a lot of people with disability do. Mm. I think we have more of an opportunity to reflect on who we are and I think that does relate to conversations around gender as well because we're more likely to be thinking about it and be questioning because we are called into question Mm. and so we have to respond to that so i think it is more likely that people Mm. with disability will actually have those thoughts whereas someone else might not have the opportunity to have those thoughts i think it's almost an advantage
0: um, yes with with that
1: yeah if you look at things like that that's, yeah.
0: that's really true Also you know a lot of people um, are fascinated mm. how people with disability might enter that sexual mm. world um, mm. and that you And hearing
1: know, you talk earlier about you know when you're a younger adult and thinking who am I who do I want to be I mean I think I don't think that's um, an unusual sort of uh, thought Uh, pattern for younger people but um you know it's far more intentional it sounds like in the way that you're you're exploring those avenues for yourself Mm -hmm. um i think you maybe were far more open to possibilities you know of of what of what you could become so um yeah
0: and i think that's where we sort of started today isn't it Mm. we talked about yen how you um at Twenty didn't want to accept your diagnosis. You wanted to be um, what you wanted to be, um, regardless of what the the world was diagnosing you a, as being, I guess. Mm. Um, and you wanted to rebel against that, which most teenagers want to do anyway. Mm. But I guess for someone with disability, you've also got that, um, you know, what the mm. world considers a shackle of having to deal with that and uh, work within those um, diagnostic. Mm. Terms or, or um, medical terms. So I think that, you know, you got to a certain time where you wanted to be who you wanted to be and identified, and now you've gone that extra step as well in 2018. Mm. Um, but usually we yeah. let you finish with something, but I'd just like to say I can't wait to read all of your books and I can't wait to see more. Please keep writing, please keep sharing um, your thoughts with us. Um, please write a children's book about (laughs) um changing you know who you what your name is what you think you are what you want to be um yeah share with us because it's it's been a wonderful um conversation Mm, yeah thank
1: you Yen. it's been a fantastic fantastic to meet you is there anything you'd like to close off with or (laughs)
2: thank you for having me it's been really really good conversation and yeah be proud of who you are everyone you know you're awesome beautiful a wonderful you
1: thank you
0: thank you so much
1: bye now